This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. You'll find this on page 898 in the Bibles under the chairs. Um, it'll also be on the screens for you to follow along. If you are physically able, please stand in the honor of reading of God's word. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were brought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your goodness would be apparent in the unpacking of this text, that we could see your heart for your people in the exhortations that we are to consider here in just a few moments. And Father, I, I pray for those who are really struggling right now in their condition, in their life circumstances. This can be a difficult text. And so I pray for them in particular. I pray that, as I just mentioned, Lord, your goodness would be apparent to them, even if they are not so happy about their circumstances right now. And I pray that we would walk out of here, Lord, really, really amazed by you and all of you. Holy Spirit, move so that we are changed uh, by our time together this morning. We love you so much, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of us are running around trying to find our calling, and especially zealous and sometimes frantic enterprise in cities like Gainesville. And boy, are we talking about my calling so, so much more than we were 40 years ago. The Google Ngram tool, and man, this is a statistical thing. I, my stats professor lives down the street from me now, which is not something that you have on your bingo card when you're an undergrad. So I was buried in articles this week trying to figure this thing out, and Dr. Winner's face was just in my mind the whole time. He was just telling me, be careful here with this, with this Ngram. So the Google Ngram tool allows you to chart the occurrences of a particular word or phrase over time as it occurs in the resources that are scanned into the Google Books database. And in 2019, which is when the database ends right now, the saturation of the phrase, my calling, was almost six times greater than it was back in 1980. And surely this is related in part to our heavily individualistic Western tendencies and the not-too-distant past, and even today this remains normative in many parts of the world. 
your vocational options were something like, do you want to do what your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did, yes or yes? But now, that sounds like heresy to our ears. Many of us trying to fly as far away from the nest as possible when it comes to our educational or vocational choices in search of finding our true selves. And I've noticed that this modern idea of calling is tightly bound to our experience of however we might define happiness. Those of us experiencing happiness in our studies or in our work are more inclined to believe that we've found our calling, while those of us who are not happy tend to wonder if our calling might be elsewhere or even assume it has to be, the produce of which is a lot of bouncing around from job to job or to different degree programs accompanied by a whole lot of anxiety. So perhaps all of this freedom and choice pertaining to our personal journey isn't always what it's cracked up to be. In fact, if we're honest, it's often a stress bath that may even cause us to fantasize about the potential goodness of someone just telling us, hey, you're going to be a blacksmith, and that's that. No need to worry about finding your true calling because no other callings are available. It's your true calling because it's the only option. Which, as fate would have it, was essentially the backdrop of the world the Apostle Paul was speaking into as he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. In many respects, you were what you were, socially, economically, etc. Although, of course, some people have more mobility than others. Last week, in the first part of chapter 7, we talked about the goodness of staying where you are with respect to marital status. Now Paul takes that sentiment a step further, addressing matters related to economics and to religion, to help Corinthian believers live with contentment in whatever circumstances God had assigned them. As we saw last week, and we will see again this morning, he's not prohibiting all circumstantial changes if or when Corinthian believers have the agency and opportunity to make them. There's some complexity there, but his focus is most definitely on helping people embrace the life God has given them in the present which makes a lot of sense, given their cultural setting. And even though we're not living in the shadow of the Roman Empire, and many of us have far more economic and social options, by God's grace, we still have a whole lot to learn this morning. Two reflections on what to make of the life to which God has assigned us. Number one, we're called to live obediently. And then number two, we're called to live contently. We're called to live obediently, and we're called to live contently. Let's begin with that first reflection. We're called to live obediently. I hope you like ghost peppers, because verse 17 is spicy. Take a look. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 
assigned and called are different sides of the same coin. By assigned, Paul is talking about God's purposeful sovereignty in giving his people the lives that we find ourselves living. And then God calls us to live faithfully and obediently in accordance with that assignment. Told you this was hot. Our contemporary sensibilities are not so sure what to do with language like this as we're busy being the masters of our own fates. And let's go ahead and admit that this language is particularly shocking to those of us who find ourselves in circumstances that we really don't prefer. Looking back at the matters we addressed in verses 1 through 16, those of us who are in difficult marriages or those of us who are wrestling with their singleness are going to have some kind of time hearing about how all of that is an assignment and a calling from the Lord. And the same is true for all of us experiencing other kinds of difficult circumstances related to our household, our work, our physical health, you name it. Language like this can foster some real frustration and anger with God. Some emotional hashing it out with the Almighty. If you don't know what I'm talking about and you happen to have kids, or at least you know somebody who's got some kids, the next time these kids object to their chores, see what happens when you encourage them in the Lord by reminding them that said chores are their calling. Put a pit in this concern. We'll come back to it later when we talk about contentment. This calling language in verse 17 happens to be the origin of the my calling language we use in the West today, especially when we use this language with transcendent cosmic undertones. It's fundamentally Christian language. The difference, and this is really important, the difference is that when Paul uses this language, it's descriptive. These circumstances are your calling. But when we use a language today, it tends to be aspirational. I'm trying to find my calling. The first emphasizes God's agency in giving us a calling. The second emphasizes our own agency in determining our calling, possibly with God's assistance, as if he's the genie, and we're Aladdin, and it's a whole new world out there, new horizons to pursue, no one to tell us no, we're like shooting stars, etc., etc. That song was uncomfortably prophetic concerning the posture of our current age, wasn't it? And making this descriptive point, that these circumstances are your calling, Paul gives pastoral guidance by making a series of, of applications, circumcision being the first item on the list, or kind of the second if you count the marriage discussion in the previous verses, clarifying an issue that I'm sure was front of mind for most of us when we walked in the door this morning. Look at verses 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. 
that comment about circumcision not counting for anything was an absolute dart, especially in the ears of Jewish hearers operating according to the terms of the Abrahamic covenant in which circumcision was the external sign of covenantal belonging to the people of God. It was like showing up, I thought about this, like showing up to a household full of people that are playing Magic the Gathering and then telling them, you know, this is just a card game, right? It's something like that. Just a lot more intense, to be clear. But Paul didn't just discourage new believers, specifically Gentile believers, from getting circumcised. He also discouraged new Corinthian believers, especially Jewish believers, from reversing the physical appearance of their circumcision as well. In other words, whatever your circumcisional circumstances, related, of course, to your spiritual heritage, Jewish or Gentile, just stay where you are. Why? This is just like old-fashioned gospel preaching right here. Because Jesus Christ established a new covenant by becoming, speaking of circumcision, cut off for our sake, that we might not be permanently cut off from God on account of our sin. So now when we repent of our sin and put our hope in Christ, the Holy Spirit grants us circumcised hearts that are set apart for God, our loves gradually reordered. And then the external marking of belonging to God's family under those new covenant terms is holy, set-apart living in obedience to God and to His commandments. That kind of living doesn't get you into the family, but that kind of living is certainly a witness to your family status. Some people are married. Some people are single. Embrace your assignment by living holy, sanctified lives that are consistent with your status as those who have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people are circumcised. Others are not. Embrace your assignment by living holy, sanctified lives. You see the rhythm here. And then finally, verses 20 and 21, addressing economic concerns now that Paul has addressed the household and spiritual heritage. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, by all means do so. See the end of verse 21. But in the meantime, your primary concern is, once again, obedience to God. Your primary concern is, is keeping the commandments by, as, as Jesus summarizes things for us, loving God and loving your neighbor. Which means that even if you're a bondservant, in Christ, you're already a spiritual freedman. Verse 22, released from the shackles of your sin for the sake of getting to live in step with how God has designed us to live. Which means that in another sense, you have a new master, Christ himself. Paul addresses bond servants because there were probably quite a lot of bond servants 
in the Corinthian church. Up to about a third of the population of Corinth and other major Roman cities were bondservants, making the practice of bondservanthood very normative and basically unquestioned in Paul's day. Bondservants were not generally or even usually servants from birth. And unlike what we think about today with respect to something like chattel slavery, they became servants not for racial reasons, but commonly for various economic reasons, like economic obligations or debts, often for a predetermined and quite long season. The dynamics of master-servant relationships were not necessarily or even inherently abusive or exploitative, but such was too often the case within the confines of an honor and shame society that celebrated power in being the king of the mountain. It wasn't necessarily going bad, but it often did go quite bad. Was Paul endorsing this economic system? No. He was shepherding the many, many people for whom bond servanthood was a lived reality. The same thing he does, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6. And as we saw in verse 21, he was all about getting out of it, if you could. But until they could get out, Corinthian believers were to embrace their economic circumstances by living holy and sanctified lives. A mindset that would, by the way, still apply even after they got out, and in truth applied to everyone and all other kinds of economic circumstances as well. So faithful obedience unto the Lord in any and all economic circumstances. That's the big theme here. If you're hoping to employ a passage like this to justify something like slavery, which as you know has certainly happened in American church history, you are doing big-time violence to the text of Scripture and offending our holy and righteous God. And if you're hoping to discredit the Bible or the church of Jesus Christ by arguing that such passages support slavery, you're making the same mistake. Can I level with you a little bit pastorally? And don't answer that question because I'm going to do it regardless. There is a growing ache in my heart that fueled by the aspirational nature of this city, in which we're always looking toward the next step or the next opportunity, that we're misunderstanding our calling as something that's coming in the future that we have to find. And there's a similar ache that when we believe we're, you know, we've, we've somehow found our calling, you know, like a particular job or a romantic partner, we're getting too consumed with the job itself or the person that we're involved with rather than how we're going about that job as faithful Christians or how we're caring for that person. These are pastoral aches because the first one blankets us with anxiety and excessive self-focus. We end up running around constantly thinking about ourselves. What's our calling? Oh my goodness, am I on the right track? Have I found it? And the blood pressure goes up. And then the second one makes us just insufferably possessive and objective, holding on far, far, far too tightly to our jobs and to other people. 
Bethany Jenkins gives this warning in a piece she wrote a few years ago called Stop Over-Spiritualizing Your Calling. And this is what she says. She says, too often we over-spiritualize calling and make it about self-expression instead of faithfulness to God and service to others. We search for the perfect job, and yet there is no job charming. Most of us could do any number of things. We simply must make a vocational choice using the classic disciplines of prayer, community, and scripture reading, work deeply at it, and be faithful in it. As Paul summarizes, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.23. That's your calling. Thus my joyful commendation of the warm shower found right here in verses 17 through 24, a pastoral reminder that our calling is to be faithful now that today God has you where he wants you to be. So live with joyful faithfulness, not as an, an anxious performance meant to earn God's favor, but as a grateful response to God's overwhelming love for his people. Remembering along the way that Jesus had a very difficult calling, did he not? Can we agree here? In fact, his faithful obedience to the assignment given to him by the Father led him straight to the cross, which gives him so much capacity to care for and to intercede for those of us who are struggling and suffering. Hebrews 2.18 comes to mind. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And he can intercede for us with surgical precision before the Father because he understands what we're dealing with. And it means that even when we don't have the whys that we might be looking for, and you know we're kind of going around punching the air, totally dissatisfied, at the very least we know that God hasn't led us into difficulties that he avoided. He stepped into all of this mess as well. And he knows. All of which brings us quite naturally to our second reflection. We're called to live contently. So first we're called to live obediently, to live holy lives. And then we're called to live, or you might say it this way, we get to live contently. Let's back up to verse 20 and then read to the end of our passage in verse 24. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Do you notice the repetition in verse 20 and verse 24? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. Church, did you know that God is with you in whatever condition to which you have been assigned and called? Did you know that? And 
not just with you like a cashier waiting at the front of the checkout line at Publix when it's early in the morning and there's nobody else in the store, so they're just sort of smiling at you with that public smile as you make your way through different aisles. Honestly, don't know if I ever feel more pressed than in those particular moments, especially because I know they can see me lingering in that candy aisle, but actually that's their fault because I'm trying to decide which $4 bag of sour worms I want to purchase for my kids that only cost 99 cents just three years ago. So I get a little bit anxious when I'm looking at 400% inflation. <laughs> God is with us more along the lines of what my youngest daughter blurted out a couple of weeks ago when I was taking her to school keeping in mind that this is just not the standard kind of thing that's blurted out in our car, okay? Full disclosure. Driving to school, and out of nowhere, she just says, Dad, God is next to us. God is next to us. Or maybe it was posed as a question, did you know that God is next to us? And you know he is. He's not just with us in a general sense. He's not even just near to us. He's next to us. He's journeying with us. He's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, enjoying the company of his spiritual children. And you're not going to believe this, but although we were eventually going to her school, my daughter said this right before we popped into Publix to buy some salads for my lunches that week because now I'm in my late 30s, and apparently my metabolism is just dead. <laughs> Biblical contentment isn't about believing that God will change your present circumstances if you just trust him enough. I am so tired of hearing that insinuated. It's about believing that God never changes, that he's always who he says he is regardless of your circumstances. And that includes being right next to his people, no matter their condition. When we believe that, we can remain with God in any condition, resisting the temptation to tether our identities to the judgment and the approval of other men and women in a very vain attempt to manufacture worldly contentment. And that's what Paul is warning about. In verse 23, when he says, do not become bondservants of men. This time, he's using the term metaphorically with respect to being shackled to the opinions and the values of other people. The enemy of contentment, city church, is a very big view of man paired with a very small view of God. Fear of man poisons our satisfaction and joy. Fear of God restores it. And remember, regardless of your present condition, in the future, things will change. They will certainly change. Because all of God's people, those found in Christ on account of repentance and belief, all of those people, they all have the same future assignment and calling. Eternity with God. But do you think about this and live like this, really? It's not wrong to think about what you might be doing next year 
or think about your next job opportunity or, or degree. There's some wisdom to be found biblically in planning, to be clear. It's just that to whatever degree we think about that future job or that future degree or what school you'll put your kids into, it makes sense to think about our future with Christ ten times more. Experiment with that ten to one ratio this week and see what happens. For every minute you spend thinking about that next thing, try to spend ten minutes thinking about Christ and the beauty of the future that we have held out for us and the new heaven and the new earth. God is next to us and better yet, he knows what he's doing. I mean, like he really knows what he's doing. Paul's assignment slash calling language, as it turns out, was hardly novel. See, for example, the language found all the way back in the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. There the psalmist, which is King David, discerns that the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. No specific circumstances are mentioned as a catalyst for this psalm, but if you know anything about King David, you know that he navigated many, many storms. Thus, the opening line of the psalm is David cries out to the Lord, saying, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And yet, on account of these difficult circumstances, David comforts himself by remembering that the Lord holds his lot and that the lines of that lot have fallen for him in pleasant places. This lot language is a shout-out to the land apportionments that the Lord ordained followed, following Israel's conquest of Canaan. You can read all about this in the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 21, and there you will find that the Lord assigned very specific lots of land to the tribes of Israel as their inheritance. And we might find these passages dry and technical and long. They're like, and then the boundary passed through so and such, and then so and such, and now here are all the cities included in those boundaries, and it goes on and on and on like that, chapter after chapter. It's a lot, but these details, think about it, would have been quite fascinating and relevant to those actually receiving these allotments as well as to their descendants. Consider, for example, how much detail we tend to put into our wills, if you have one, if you don't, get one today. And we're just apportioning one estate, not an entire land. But do you see what David is communicating? The Lord who allocated lots to the Israelites with the wisdom and the precision of an elite surgeon. He is the same Lord who uses the same wisdom and precision to allocate the circumstances of your life. You may not love your circumstances. You might even hate them on some level. But remember that God remains your portion at all times. And your condition is never random, it's never thoughtless, it's never, ever vindictive. God is not out there trying to punish the people of God. Here's how much joy is possible in Christ when we really grasp this. 
Of course, the, the point here isn't to shame those of us who are joyless, but to give the joyless some hope that their joy isn't contingent on circumstantial change. I told you about Richard Williams before, but it was so good, it's been enough years now that I'm bringing him right back for our purposes this morning. These are journal entries from the surgeon and Methodist preacher Richard Williams while he and his missionary team were simultaneously, think about this, starving to death and freezing to death as they waited on a delayed supply ship. This was on Good Friday, April 18, 1851. Richard Williams writes, Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel to our souls, and God we feel and know is there. And then on Wednesday, May 7th, a few weeks later, he wrote, Should anything prevent me from ever adding to this, that all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. And then shortly after these entries, everyone on the team died of starvation and exposure because the ship was too late. People staying at all-inclusive resorts in the Caribbean don't even talk like this, right? I mean, they might leave positive reviews on Google, right? But they're not telling one another, I was happy beyond description. <laughs> we just don't talk like that. And yet here is Richard Williams leaving exactly this kind of review for Tierra del Fuego while his very life was getting snuffed out by the elements. It's a bit compelling, isn't it? I think so. At least far more than the estate of the person who's constantly flailing around for happiness and meaning, always giving fairly negative and cynical reports, despite the appearance of having quite a lot of wonderful earthly things going for them. And indeed, if you are sitting here this morning in the throes of discontentment, this should give you a lot of hope. As it turns out, we'll end with this, true contentment is not contingent on changes to your circumstances, which are often outside of your control. We're not playing the contentment lottery. God has assigned us a lot, so let's live as we're called, trusting that the fullness of contentment and joy is possible for every last one of us, no matter our condition. Amen.